I'm all for having fun. You know the saying, when you party, party hard. When you work, work hard. I believe in that. But don't get it twisted. Be disciplined when you work. Be disciplined in your diet. Lift weights. The world's tough. It's going to throw tremendous challenges at you. Yes, there's fun and games, and I like to play them when I can, but I, I don't forget that the next day when you wake up, you're going to have to get out of bed, and you're going to go have to face life. I was just reading uh, about Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, the famous philosopher, and he said, you know, he came up with this concept of the Superman, the Superman, and he said, you have to have a will to power, not a power over other people, but power within yourself, self-control. This is what you need in this modern world. Trust me, Russia ain't gonna make it. You guys started out with basically nothing, nothing. So take me through the process. Like, what well, job? What were you doing for work before? I used to do fiber optic installations for a telecom com company. Okay. And uh, I managed a professional fundraising company doing door to door. Did you like your job? It was all right, but I was still working for someone else and getting up when being told to do what to do and when to do it. So how does it feel now? I wake up when I want and do what I want. <laughs> so we're here at Affiliate Summit, by the way. We're just walking the halls and talking for a few minutes. A little mini, mini podcast episode. So let's talk about three things you've learned for somebody watching who maybe doesn't like their job, but they're afraid to quit because they're like, what if I don't make any money? Let's talk about... The, the hardest thing that you've learned, that's number one. The What's the hardest thing, lesson you've learned? The biggest thing for me that I realized was I was spending all that time for someone else to stay just over broke. And now, why not invest in myself, right? Yeah. We did that and... Now, what's the, once you decided to make the break, quit. Looking back over the last year, what's been the hardest part of going out on your own? Not making the money I was wanting to make. Not instantly, not instantly, instantly yeah. making the money I want to make. We put in a lot of money and we lost a lot of money in the beginning, yeah. but we never quit. We so just kept did going. You, did you have some money saved from your job? You, if somebody's listening, do you recommend save up a little bit before you quit your job? Save oh, absolutely. Up, absolutely. Save, you know, 15, 20 grand if you can. So you think then, that's the number say you need to have that much? It's not the saved? number, but, you know, just to be able to do what you love for a little bit, right? If you love this, save a little money so you can do that, right? So then you can be free and put all that time into it. Have a bit of a comfortable cushion so you're not freaking out every day if you're not making money that so day. So what's your monthly bills when you quit? Because 15 grand, how long would that last you? Like you know, if six I months, to, three months, one year? I could make it last 10 months, but I'd say about a grand was my monthly that I would need. So basically, this is what Joel, you're kind of like my first mentor. He waited till he had about six to 12 months saved up before he quit his yeah. day job. And the cool thing about e-commerce, drop shipping, making money online, you can do it part-time. Yeah, exactly. Did you guys start doing a little bit part-time? We, we did, we did. How would you manage um, that, like on Saturdays so, or something? No, no, uh, we were going straight from work to home, and you know what, after a long work day, instead of just kicking our feet up, we put three or four hours a night in. 100%. So let's talk about, okay, so step number one, first thing they learned, the hardest lesson was you don't necessarily always make money instantly, so you don't have to burn your bridge, quit your job until you have a little bit set aside. Suckers get screwed. Never be a sucker. You don't have to be overly cynical because I find most cynical people are actually suckers. 
with hard exterior shells, but easy, easily manipulated. It's the people that are just common sense right there in the middle. They're not overly initially skeptical and they're not overly taken in by words. They're just kind of like, oh. And you will find out of those 10 friends, and it might be a friend that you didn't even know was a friend. You might have only counted an acquaintance. They might actually show up. And you can have a celebration waiting for them because you're like, this was actually a surprise true friend party. And I wanted to see. And you can also do another test. You can post some awesome event that happened to you recently on your Facebook page that's followed by your family and friends. And do it in a teeny bragging way. Not insane bragging. You got a new car? Pose by it. Now, some people might find that tacky. Okay. A lot of things are tacky. Lying friends are tacky too. And you're going to find just one person that you thought was so awesome is going to make a snide, passive-aggressive remark. Like, oh, well, look who thinks they're awesome because they got a new car. See, a true friend with true friendship, uh, the Dalai Lama says that there's two kinds of happiness. There's happiness you experience for yourself. Something happens to you. And there's one and I forget the Buddhist term. There's an Asian word that I don't remember. And it translates into feeling happy for the good that happened to someone else. And the Dalai Lama said the reason he's such a happy person is he says you can never be completely happy in yourself because bad things happen to you. But when you derive equal happiness from those around you experiencing great things, then all of a sudden you're happy all the time. I'm happy if Zach goes on a date this weekend with a girl. I know you never told me what happened. He said he has a date with a, I forget the word. What was it? Curly haired. Zach likes girls with curly hair. And I'm like, if I'm a true friend, then I'm like, well, good for Zach. And then you'll find those. Some people are like jealous, like, oh, oh, well, look at this guy. Always got to be out on a date. That's the person that when you post on your Facebook, something cool that's happened to you, some new thing you got, something all the weird people rise to the surface. That's why sometimes people ask me. I, I have a lot of people who watch my stuff. Over 200 million people have watched. So naturally, if 1% of people don't like me, that's 2 million people. And of course, mean people leave more comments. So sometimes people are like, Ty, how do you deal with this? And I'm like, I just realized I'm smoking out the haters. It's like you throw tear gas into a house and all that terrorists have to run out because they can't breathe and then you shoot them. Pop, 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 pop. Now, I don't shoot people, but it's a metaphor of when you post on your Facebook and the weird people come, you block them and never talk to them again. Or maybe give them one more chance. But now you're aware like that's a person who has a stupid power. A superpower is taking your happiness and making themselves happy from it. A stupid power is when your friend has something cool happen to them and you feel envy. Charlie Munger, a person I really look up to, says envy. He says, if you're going to have a sin in your life, almost every other sin feels good in the moment. Adultery. Okay. You sleep with someone's wife. In the moment, it felt good. Murder. Sometimes you meet somebody, they do something to you, you're like, if I murdered you, I might feel good. Although you go through the Ten Commandments, stealing, Ten Commandments. Okay, I steal this, I feel good. Now I got a battery charger. But he said, thou shalt not envy 
thy neighbor. He said, you never feel good when you envy. It's a sin. <laughs> you don't have to be, be an atheist. It's a sin that's wrong and you feel bad the whole time from start to finish. So when you post on your Facebook and the envious people come up, they are your true enemies. They are literally enemies. I don't care if they're your mom, dad, cousin, brother, sister. They do not care about you. No matter how much Christmas presents they bring or how much they kiss you on the cheek at Thanksgiving. No, don't, don't believe it. Don't, don't, don't. Go, how come you didn't like that? And that's why I look at it. And that's why you should never, ever concern yourself. Now, if somebody has a legitimate thing and says, hey, I really like you, but that post you did on Facebook, I have a feeling it's going to bring a lot of hate to you. You might want to take it down. That's different because now they're actually constructively looking to criticize you. Should Constructive criticism is great, whether it come in the form of meanness, but pure envy, we all know how to differentiate it. You can, there's no constructive. It's just like, oh. Look at you. Ah, it's no, they're not looking out for your well-being. So I hope you figure out this out quicker, faster, and more clearly than I did. Because in some ways, your life – and people ask me, like, what's the biggest thing that can happen to you? Like, I remember first time I made, like, a million dollars in, like, a day or two. And you're like, that's cool. Took like 36 hours. Basically profit too. Like real, like just a million bucks in like a day or two. It doesn't feel that good. It's kind of cool for a second. It's not like a life-changing thing. Just take it from me. It's not life-changing. I can't go, I don't even remember what date it was. It wasn't, I can remember certain dates in my life. It was a cool day. It is a momentous day. But the day that I woke up to how people are, that's like when you start actually living. That's like the matrix. It's like when you your eyes are open and you go, oh, wow, this is actually how the world works. It's not what everybody said in school. It's not what they said in church. It's not what my parents who tricked themselves and then tricked me accidentally into believing. It's none of that. And when you see, it's kind of like if you can't see. I saw a cool video I actually posted on my Instagram of a two maybe not even a two-year-old, a one-year-old kid born basically blind. And they found, no, was it blind or, yeah, it was blind. And they prepared a special set of glasses. And no, no, sorry, it was deaf. It was deaf. It was a deaf boy or girl and could never had heard a sound. And when they put the sound in the kid's face, uh, in the kid's ears, first the kid's face was like, what? I'm scared. And all of a sudden, it was the coolest smile I've ever seen on a human. It was the most genuine, like, oh my God, there's a whole new world. I can hear, I can listen to the birds and people and that. And it was just a one-year-old baby. And the reason I posted that is because like, when you get what I'm talking about, that's what the world will seem like to you, new. And some people go, is this pessimistic? Like all of a sudden, like the world's worse? Well, in a way for that baby, the world's worse. All of a sudden the baby can hear things that are negative too, but still it's better to see clearly. It's better to hear clearly. And so I w the most important day of your life is when you actually embrace this and go, yeah, People told me 
they didn't like me. I mean, people who told me they loved me didn't. And those people that were more blunt with me and more constructive criticism, those were my true friends. And I forgot about that. I got mad at the wrong person. And all of a sudden you change your social circle a little bit and you change who you spend time with and invest your time, energy, effort, money with. And all of a sudden the true friends rise to the top, like the cream rises to the top, just like milk, you know? And you're like, that's the best part. That's the richest part. And then life starts. And so I hope you have that day and that epiphany and you'll have to, this video, this recording, it won't be enough. You will also have to find it on your own. But I hope it'll make you aware so you start paying attention just everywhere you go. Imagine we're all dogs and words don't work anymore. And so now you just have to watch what people do. Watch them. Watch them. If you're dating someone and they say they love you and every time you want to hang out with them, they have other plans, they don't. If they say they really like you and you text them and they're like, oh my God, I would totally... I, I started learning this with dating. I can't tell you how many men and women on planet Earth right now literally have somebody in their life they're romantically interested in who kind of reciprocates back just enough to get them hooked on that person. And then every time they want to go a little further, they pull back. It's like a game. It's actually scientists call it avoidant tendencies in attachment theory. There's a good book on this called Attached by Heller and Levine. At least 50% of the population on planet Earth is either an anxious avoidant or an anxious avoidant, which means there are bad people to be in relationships with. This is pure, there's about 50 to 100 years of science on this, by the way. You can Google attachment theory. Um, it's real legitimate, fascinating. It starts even at, at a child, even they can observe it in four-year-old, under four-year-old children. And the reason people get suckered into it is because they're listening to the words. So an avoidant person is a master and they most of them don't know they're doing it. That's the sad thing. They're not trying to trick you. They're literally programmed. Some of it's environmental, some of it's DNA. And um, they're, they will always hold you at this place where you're hoping and they're leading you and the, the mechanism to pull you along like fish. How do you catch a fish? You like lead it along with, throw it out and you reel it in. So you need movement for most fish and you need some kind of bait. Some kind of, and that's most, and you're literally leading the fish to its death. And that's how people are in relationships. It's like you got a business partner and they're like, oh, I'm in 50 50. And you're like, hey, I need your help. And they're like, okay, I'll be there. But they don't show up and like, oh, there's a lot of work to be done. How come I'm doing it all? Oh, I'm, I will do it. I'm doing it. And you're just going to your death of that business. And love. Oh, okay. You really? You want to hang out this Friday? Oh, you know, I made plans with oh, my coworker. If you love somebody, you're gonna break those plans to hang out with that person. You're just led to the slaughter. Boom. And then over and over, school system. Oh yeah, we will prepare you for life. Okay, I'm gonna show up in class. Actually, I don't have a choice. A truant police officer will come drag me in. But okay, so we're gonna teach you like calculus or math, but. But why do I need math? Oh, just trust me, you need it to think logically. But, but what about just teaching me logic and like actual street smart thing? No, we will get to that. We just, oh no. Oh, high school's over? Okay, college. 
You, it's because we didn't have time. From the age six to 18, this stuff's way too complicated. Come to our college, it'll cost you $20,000 a year and like, come, we're gonna get you prepared for life. Okay, art history. Is that preparing me for, uh, yes, it will. Just trust me, it's a well-rounded education. Hookfish led to the freaking slaughter. Bah! The fundamentals of business are never gonna change, whether it's in another country or the fact that technology comes here. There's two ways to operate business, increase sales or reduce costs. There's three ways to deal with a customer, acquire a new one, upsell a current one, or make one buy more frequently. All these things are going to need to be done in any business you have, as yeah. simple as that. So, so listen, there's a lot of people that come over to this great country of ours and they are entrepreneurs and they make it over here and they come and blow up, right? Yeah. Because they were like, man, it was hard over there. This is easy over here. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I'll tell you, if you look at global wealth, it's not just America anymore. Not even close. No way. Okay, Scott Winzinger, number four here. He's just asking you, best advice you ever received from somebody? Money is a great slave, but a horrible master. Hmm. And every time I started to realize that, the meaning of that, and every time I see somebody that opened a business because they want to be rich, or every time, as I was sharing with you, that the friends of mine that we grew up with that are all dead or in jail because they decided to sell crack when crack came around and I was a kid, uh, learning that they were only just chasing money, that really was the determining factor for most of the people's failures I've ever seen. Because if you're out there doing something for money, you know, you could do something for a year or two years, it's going to feel like it's forever. Yeah. And as soon as you get the money, you're going to blow it on a lot of things because you're like, man, I finally got it, right? But the day that you start to do something because of a passion, a drive, and you know this solves a problem and and, and you do it because of a love, you will do that forever. Yeah. You know, like I told you about the five years I worked, I wasn't, I had a great time selling, making my shirts for those five years that I didn't know it was ever gonna be anything. Really, honestly, I opened a FUBU in 89, I closed it three times up until 92 because I kept running out of money, like $1,000, 2000 yeah. $3,000. And I didn't get any public recognition really until 97. Really? So that's how long it nine was. Nine years. That in. was nine yeah. years. But I was a young kid. I loved hip hop. I was able to go on the video sets and holler at the video girls. You know, I was able to eat at the, you know, the food that was out there. And as soon as they come <laughs> to kick benefits me benefits. Yeah, as soon as they come to kick me out, on uh, the video set, I'd be like, <clears throat> I'm, I'm the one supplying the, the shirts for uh, that. That my friend, the rapper, for him? No, yeah. no, for his cousin. I'm supplying the shirt for his cousin on set. I need to stay here pimping. And that's how I stayed on it. And I would do that forever. I would have paid to go on the set to look at LL Cool J and all these amazing artists, right? Yeah. You know, so, um, so listen, you're doing something you love, man. It's fascinating and it's just, it's great. Yeah, one of my mentors said, if you have to take a vacation from your job, you should never go back. That's true. If you have to. It's okay to take a vacation, but if you got that feeling like, I got to get out of here. I've been, you know, two months working. It's not, you're not going <laughs> to make it done. in this game. It's done. You say you heard 1989 to, to 97, you yeah. had to just kind of work in That's silence. It. That's it, but I, but I loved it. I love every minute of it. All right, let's get one more here, and then we'll do a few more. We'll do, I want to do a lightning round at the end, but okay, Nick Grover, number five, productivity tip. How many hours a week do you recommend somebody work? Is that even the right question? 
No, that's the wrong question. And that's the whole purpose for Rise and Grind. I'm, uh, I'm explaining because the Rise and Grind is a productivity book, right? Because yep. it was at a point where I was already eight, nine years on the Shark Tank, 60 or 80 companies I'm investing in. I got a little two year old baby girl at home. I got all my other companies. I have my health and things uh, that I have to wonder about and, uh, you know, and, and make sure that I work on. And I started interviewing and or talking to some dear friends of mine, like Captain Zeta Jones, Santana, and, and other friends that you may not know, like my buddy Kyle Maynard, who um, who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, but he was born with no arms and no legs, and he climbed it with no prosthetics, wow. right? Huh. And I started to say to them, I want to know your productivity tips, because the Damon John at 20 is no longer the Damon John at 48. Yeah. I can't put in the work like I've done back then. And, you know, mastery is not just something you learn right away, and boom, you're a master. You know, when Bruce Lee was still alive at 35, he was a master in Kung Fu. But at 70, with the same, with, with different muscle retention, different speed and different strength, he's going to have to learn a master to fight a different way. Yeah. Like Ali, when he came out of jail, when they stripped him, he had to learn the rope dope to become more effective to beat George Foreman. So productivity in regards to time is very, very different for each person. We were just on the phone with Grant. Grant Cardone in the book. He'll schedule a meeting for 9.06 because he wants everybody to know how serious is he is about time, right? Yeah. Other people in the book won't send out any, won't answer any emails for the first hour of the day because as soon as you pick up that phone, the beginning of the day, you answer emails, you're answering everybody else's goddamn problem. You're taking yeah. care of everybody else's stuff. Instead, like Chris Saka, he looks at his inbox as his uh, uh, defense and his outbox as his offense, so he'll send out as many emails as he wants, but he will not look at anybody else's right. emails for the first hour of the day. So you have to think about productivity as various different things, and in this book, I have 15 subjects to show you maybe if you put them all together, a hundred different ways to be productive that fits you. So productivity, I can't tell you for one hour. Right here. Yeah, rise and grind. I can't tell rise you the, the one answer to, uh, you know, for life because honestly, uh, the biggest question that everybody has usually is work-life balance. How do you, how do, you do it? Is there a website? Chadgoesdeep.com. Chadgoesdeep. That's the name. Oh so Chadgoesdeep. And uh, that sounds like that sounds like a porn. Dude, name people keep saying that. They're like, the connotation is weird. But I'm like, it was it's strictly. Like deep throat. Like the first porn movie in it's the not, 70s. It's not about chicks. It's an intellectual endeavor. Yeah. I mean, I started because I was, I was trying to bone up on my knowledge. And then as we've gone along, it's been to get people more stoked. But I mean, I know it has that connotation. So, but often wanting to revive house parties is a purely altruistic move. Absolutely. Girls have nothing to do with it. Alcohol has nothing to do with it. Well, I mean, he said he wants a party with the maximum freedom. Yeah. So, if you're interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and want to learn how to make money with Bitcoin, I'm opening up a brand new Bitcoin crypto academy for you. Crypto is starting to fundamentally change everything from currencies to the very structure behind the internet. And if you don't understand it, you will be left behind. Remember, if you had put $100 into Bitcoin in 2010, you would have over $100 million right now. I don't want you to miss out on the coming opportunities offered by Bitcoin in the cryptocurrency space. So I brought in the best experts in the game, the people that are teaching me and training me, and I'm gonna share that with you because it's not too late 
to understand Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and the blockchain and to make money with it. So to sign up for my new Bitcoin Crypto Academy and learn how to invest, how to make money in this new exciting space, I'm gonna open up room for a few of you to have early access to the new online mentor mastermind. So go to tylopez.com slash Bitcoin podcast to learn more. So I'm testing the mastermind. So I'm just gonna let a few of you in at a low price and uh, it's already filling up quickly. So if you wanna get in, I'll let a few of you in. So go to tylopez.com slash Bitcoin podcast, all one word, tylopez.com slash Bitcoin podcast. If the course is closed, when you get to the page, put in your name in the waiting list, you missed out on the first round. Uh, and if you see it, welcome to the group. I'm glad you didn't procrastinate. Okay, back to the show. So what's a maximum freedom party look like? Well, I think there's like, you don't have to pay for your drinks. Okay. Yeah. There's not a finite amount of drinks. Uh -huh. But it what about the person flowing. who has to pay for it? They don't have any freedom. Well, I think if you take on the responsibility of a party, it's up to uh, you to kind of set the environment to a certain standard. So freedom for the guests. What else is free? Free love? Free, free alcohol? Love, absolutely. Free bonding? Free bonding? Yeah. Free dance floor. There we free go. Free dance floor. Yeah. Free yeah. weed. It's, it's a California kind of network. I guess now. Sure. Free it, weed. If we can get yeah, away with it. Yeah. some butt at the party. Free Whether or not you partake, no it's good. No. No. Math is, no so is that freedom? Do that in private. I think, yeah. Good call. My, my mentor, Joel Souths, had told me, he said, Ty, I think all drugs should be legalized. If you want to fry your brain out on crack, go ahead. It ain't have anything to do with me. So he would, he would say even meth could be there. Yeah, he's an interesting uh, yeah. person. I mean, I definitely party with him, but that's you not our style. He doesn't, to be clear, Joel Salton doesn't do meth. He was just saying he's a libertarian, so he's like, you know what? What you want to do, as long as you ain't going to... Now, some people get on meth and get a little hyped up. Yeah. Where I grew up was like the PCP capital of the world, I think, so... You don't want to be around somebody on PCP who's mad. They Where was all, that? That was down in, I was born in Long Beach, but I also lived down in, in San Diego. What up? You were from nice. California too. Yeah? Yeah. What part? Orange County. Okay. San Clemente. San Clemente. That's yeah. kind of San Diego. Yeah, Do I'm you guys close. surf, skate? I surf. He's bodyboarding. I bodyboard. I'm not the okay. strongest swimmer. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you bodybuild. He surfs. Body I do build. lift. You do? Okay. Yeah. Does that, help your, does that help your bodyboarding game? I think so. It helps in all aspects of my life, you know? You feel good, you act good. Do you feel like training every single day in jiu-jitsu? No. No one does. I don't care who you are. Yeah. The days that you don't feel like training and you go anyways, that's how you get better. That's when you get better. And that's the difference between people that become a black belt or at least become highly skilled and the people that don't. Because the people that don't, the day that they don't feel like training, they don't go train. Yeah. And then guess what? The next day they're like, yeah, you know what? It was kind of nice just watching TV yesterday and relaxing, so I'm not going to go today either. Whereas the person that says, you know what? I'm training today. I don't feel like it. I'm going anyways. Same thing with the gym. I don't feel like working out right now. I'm working out anyways. Same thing with uh, the donuts, right? I want the donut, but I'm not going to eat it. It's not what I want. It's not, it's not going to help my long-term goals, eating a donut. Jelly donut does you no good. Let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> Tastes good in the moment. So, so somebody just taking a few comments here. Somebody said magic doesn't happen overnight. Somebody said the math says it's not going to happen to them. 
So are you a, are you fatalistic? Do you kind of see the world and go, this person never could be a Navy SEAL. This person never could be a black belt. This person never going to be disciplined. They're always going to procrastinate. Or do you always have hope that maybe deep down there's this, you know, gem that's just hidden behind the rock? Well, oddly enough, and they've done all, they did all kinds of studies and they still do them to figure out who's going to make it through SEAL training. Okay. And they've done, they spent millions of dollars trying to figure out who's going to make it through. And even when, you've, when you see people, you see people in your SEAL training class and you go, man, that guy's a stud. You know, in the classic examples I use all the time, I had a guy in my class, one guy was a NCAA water polo player. That's a high caliber athlete right there. Yeah. And another guy was a Olympic alternate gymnast. So okay. crazy athlete. Both those guys quit. Huh. Both of them. I was like a marginal high school athlete, right? Just, you know, I was like an okay athlete, but I made it. And there was guys that I thought there's no way this guy's going to make it. And he made it. And people that I thought were going to make it didn't make it. And so what that says to me is that it doesn't really matter who you are. It doesn't really matter about these skills that these, these natural, you know, abilities that you might have. If you've got the will to make it happen, you can yeah. make it happen. Now, of course, there's some people that don't have the physical aptitude to get through the training. That happens. And, and a lot of it is injuries. You know, you can't, right. you can't take the, beat, the, the daily beating of the training. You get stress fractures. You, you break your leg. You get pneumonia. You Did get you hypothermia. See that a lot? People oh, do. Yeah. yeah. What's the hardest, not to interrupt you, but what in hell week, your Navy SEAL, we see it on TV, and I never believe it, what I see on TV, so I'm going straight to the source. What's the, for you, what was the absolute hardest part? The exercise, the, the thing you had, the drill. The, okay, first of all, I wasn't great at anything, right? Okay. So I wasn't the fastest runner. I wasn't the fastest swimmer. I wasn't the fastest at the obstacle course. I was kind of in the middle. And so none of those things were super hard for me to do. But at the same time, I had to go as hard as I could for all those. So for instance, one time I decided on a run that I was going to, it's a timed run. You do a four-mile timed run in the sand with boots on. So it's, it's actually not really four miles. It's kind of whatever the instructors want to, want to make it that day. And you're worn out. And I decided one day, you know what? I'm going to pace myself. I'm not going to run as hard as I can. I'm going to pace myself. Save something for later. So I went out, paced myself, did the run, and failed. Failed the run. And I realized right there, everything I did in that training, I had to do as hard as I could. Now, there were some guys that ran cross-country in high school. Those runs were a joke for them. There were some guys that swam in college. The swims were a joke for them. For me, I had to go hard for everything. So everything had a level of difficulty for me. But at the same time, there was like, I always talk about the fact that some people say, oh, everyone thinks about quitting. And like, I never thought about quitting at really? all. No, not at all. N not in any way. So you were never at the point where like, dude, I got to ring the bell. It's the bell, yeah, right? The Do bell. they have the bell? Yeah, oh, is that, the bell. That's not just TV? It's not just TV. And I never... How many people rang the bell, you guess? It's like 80%. Really? Yeah, it's like 80%. Like I, my class started with something like 130 people and we graduated 35. Wow. And how many of them were just pure injuries versus will? They gave up willpower. Uh, I don't know. But it was like half know. of them were most, you know, most of them are quitters. Really? Yeah, so yeah, most, most people, it's not that quitters. they broke their leg. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, hell most no, of them I are quitters. Most of them are quitters. And it's just cold. Well, it's cold. You don't get to sleep. You're tired. Yeah. Yeah. The cold is a, the cold is a big one. And the water. Just the water in general. How cold was it? 
It's Southern California water, which everyone watched yeah. Baywatch growing up. They think that water's 80 degrees no. like Florida, but it's not. No, sir. It's cold. <laughs> you don't have a wetsuit on, I'm No, assuming. no wetsuits. You get wetsuits during swims, and we used to get crappy old wetsuits. Now the guys get nicer wetsuits, but good on them. Good on How them. many hours are you in that cold water? Depends. I mean, the uh, you do a five-and-a-half nautical mile swim, which is... 6.2 statute miles, I think. Anyways, yeah. it took me like four and a half hours to complete yeah. of just swimming. That's cold. Yeah, yeah. But Hell Week, you're basically wet the whole time, cold and wet. How much sleep do you get? The only reason they let you, they'll let you sleep for like an hour. And the only reason they do it, so they can wake you back up again. They, they get you dry like a, like a couple days into Hell Week. So you've been wet, cold, miserable, no sleep for a few days. You've been you're carrying a boat, you're, you're exhausted. And so then they take you and they put you in a, they, they go, okay, put dry clothes on. So you go put dry clothes on. They're like, okay, you guys, this hell week's been too hard. We're going to let you guys sleep for a, a night. So it's And you don't know what you're, you know. Yeah. So then they put you in there, you fall asleep. And then 45 minutes later, they're in there with shooting machine guns and, and blowing whistles and telling you go right back in the ocean. And oh, so many people quit right there. It's pretty impressive. Really? Yeah, people yeah, just yeah. go, hell no. <laughs> Zach? I know how you love your bed. Yeah. Would you be able to get up out of that? Yeah, I've got pride. Zach said pride. All right, I'm going to try that here at the office. Three days. Some of Tommy Bat says Jocko is a beast. Raphael has a question for you. If you had to describe the hardest survival training that you ever took, what would it be? Was it that run that you told me about? What run did I tell you about? You were telling me that you held back? Oh, yeah, yeah. This, that was just a normal four-mile time run. Uh, survival. So, you know, we go through... We go through survival, evasion, resistance, and escape school where you are out in the woods. But the training for the SEALs, everyone thinks about that initial training where you're carrying the boats around and all that stuff. And, and that only lasts six months. And honestly, in the SEAL teams, you don't even think about that. Because once you're in SEAL teams, everyone went through that. It's no big deal. That's when the actual hard training starts is when you get to the SEAL teams. Because now it's not just, hey, do push-ups, pull-ups, and climb this rope and jump over that wall. Now it's... Climb this rope, climb this caving ladder, you know, swim onto this target. And then when you get there, you're cold, wet, and tired. Now think. Right. Now think. Now you got to prosecute a target. Now you got to discriminate between shooting bad guys and good guys. It's, that's a lot harder mentally than just the basic SEAL training, which, again, that's what everyone talks about because it's, it's made public, you know. You can watch yeah. YouTube about Movie it. Movie and but they the, the bell. But, yeah, yeah. But the, the actual SEAL training is a lot harder. And when I, I ended up running the training, and when I ran the tra- that kind of training, that more advanced training, that training was hard as hell. That training yeah. was brutal. And, yeah, yeah, that training was brutal. Those boys were ready for combat, though, for sure. What Did you have a specialty? What, were you a sniper? Like a, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Did you have different specialties over 20 years? So when I started off, I was a, what's called a radio man. So I carried the big radio yeah. and talked to aircraft, talked to supporting elements. That's what my job was. And then once I, I got, then I got commissioned as an officer. And once you're an officer, you don't have a specialty anymore. You're in charge of the operations themselves. So did you eventually, that was when you were actually running the training once you became an officer? Yeah, yeah. Did you pull the same tricks they pulled on you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Waking people up? Because I've always wondered, it's like, being a drill sergeant, are they genuinely, is it all a show? Are they, like, mad? And like, or is they just ornery people? Or what is it? Is it a little mix of everything? No, what it is, they're doing their job. Yeah. They're doing their job. They're, they're you know, when you see the Marine Corps drill instructors, the Army drill sergeants, 
the, the SEAL team instructors, they're doing their job. They're, what they're doing is they're trying to put stress on people. They're trying to put stress on people because combat is stressful. Yeah. And if you don't have people inoculated to stress or you don't have people that leave because they can't handle the stress, then those instructors aren't doing their jobs. Yeah. Now let's talk. You've been in battle. You've gotten the, the silver star, bronze star. What's something that stood out to you that you remember will remember? I'm sure you'll remember many things, but is there like just something, a hyper stressed point, a point where you had to make a crazy decision when you were actually in battle? I mean, the, the thing that you, all these elements, all these things that happen, everyone, every time you go out, there's something that's going to happen or there's something that could happen. So you constantly have that on your mind. And I'll tell you, for me, you know, like the first time I ever got into, the first time I ever got shot at, I didn't even know I was getting shot at because I was, we had, no one had any combat experience, including me. And I'm sitting there, I was actually in a Humvee and I'm looking at the Humvee in front of me. It's wearing a, we got five Humvees and we're going somewhere. And I'm looking at the Humvee in front of me and I see, it looks like someone's flipping cigarettes out the window, like little sparks are coming. And I'm hmm. thinking to myself, Who, who's smoking? Like, why is, wait, why is there five or six people smoking in that Humvee right now? Well, it turns out, I realized after I'm thinking about it, I go, oh, those are bullets. We're getting shot at right now. Huh. And it's one of those things where you realize like, oh, this is, this is uh, not a game. Yeah. Did your stress level go, level go through the roof then, or were you able through the training just to stay calm right in the midst of battle? I'll tell you what. I had been in the military for—I'd th- been in the SEAL teams for like 13 years huh. before I shot my gun for the first time at Bad Guys. Really? And by that time, it was like uh, taking a glass, taking a drink of water. I mean, I was so ready and yeah. so prepared that, yeah, it was— it was, Where were you? The training is great. Where I was in Iraq. I was in Baghdad. Baghdad. Yeah. So I just saw this movie, 12 Strong, which is the story of the first, I think they, they weren't Navy SEALs, they were, uh, they were Green Berets, I think. they I were think. Green Berets, yeah. And they forces. got dropped there behind the lines, Afghanistan, and they end up on horse, it's like a wild story. I'm not sure how, how well Hollywood told the story, but do you think, not to get political, but going to the Middle East has been, they call it the graveyard of empires. Russia was there, Genghis Khan was there, Alexander the Great was there. In the long term, is it sustainable, do you think, and, and you know, it's outside of our hands, is it sustainable for countries like the United States to have a presence there? Are we doing more good than bad? What's your opinion? Well, look at the presence that we kept in countries after World War II. We're still in Germany right now. We're still in Japan right now. You know, so that idea that we can't maintain that is kind of a false concept. We, if, we, if we had the will, then we'd stay there. And it's the same thing with any situation that America gets into. If we have the will, then we can, do, uh, we can, do, we can achieve whatever mission we want to achieve. If we lack the will, then it's, it's a lost cause. And, you know, we did a lot of good in Iraq. And I, I didn't fight in Afghanistan, but in Iraq there was... You know, first of all, if you saw, number one, the way that the, the conditions that the people lived under Saddam and, and we went, I went and walked around inside of buildings that were owned by Saddam and they had literal torture chambers in them, really? you know, with meat hooks. It was horrible to see. And to think that, and, and when we got there, the people were so happy. Now, what happened was, you know, there was some, it's hard to fight a war. 
it's easy to fight a war looking back. We can all see mistakes that were made, but we didn't recognize the emergence of this insurgency in Iraq. And when that happened, we didn't address it properly, quickly enough. Eventually we did. And eventually we did a great job. And, you know, when I think back to... How, what did we do right when you say we addressed it correctly? Well, once... So the, the, the major difference was, at first, we were thinking, hey, you know what? There's, there's terrorists here. We'll go capture the terrorists. And then once we capture the terrorists, we'll be okay. Well, what it really turned into was an insurgency, which is a little bit different. An insurgency is not just one or two people. It's a movement. Yeah. And the movement... Once it started, they started to get financing. They started to get leadership from foreign fighters would come in. You know, Al-Qaeda leadership would come in and started giving them direction and, and giving them leadership, really. And so we didn't recognize that soon enough. Yeah. Because what we thought is if we go out, if we go out and capture or kill the leadership of the insurgency, then the insurgency will die. That's what we thought. And the, the common metaphor that you'd hear is if you cut the head off a snake, the snake will die. And no one argues with that. Why? Because it's factually true. If you cut the head off a snake, it dies. So we thought the insurgency is like a snake. If we cut off the head, it'll die. Well, we cut off many heads. And what we didn't realize that the, the, the insurgency wasn't like one snake. It was like Medusa. Yeah. So every time we cut off one head, there'd be more. So what we had to do was we had to change our strategy. And we eventually did that. We eventually said, okay, we're not just going to go out and get the bad guys. What we're going to go out and do is we're going to take care of the civilian populace inside Iraq, the normal, everyday people that are living in Iraq that were being terrorized. Now, we throw that word around, like in America, we talk about being terrorized. I'm talking these people were being terrorized. These people were being beheaded. These people were being murdered. These people were being raped, tortured by these insurgents. They didn't want those insurgents there. They were so scared, they didn't know what to do. And eventually, once they realized, once we changed our tactics and changed our strategy to, to make it, instead of fighting the terrorists, we made it, let's secure the populace, let's take care of the people that are there. Once they realized that we were going to take care of them, they started giving us information and intelligence. Mm. Once they started giving us information and intelligence, we could really go out and target the right people, and that's what turned things around. And, and in, the, in the Battle of Ramadi, where, where I fought on my second deployment to Iraq, with the 1-1 AD you know, a bunch of, bunch of soldiers and Marines. I, I want to make it perfectly clear that I'm not just talking about, you know, the SEALs that I had with me. It's, it's a huge team of, of soldiers and Marines that were fighting on the ground. But they, that city completely changed from a complete war zone to a, to a very peaceful place. Hmm. And it spent seven years in, in complete peace. And it was amazing to see. And, you know, the, the, the local populace on the ground there was completely uh, happy that we were there and happy that we got rid of the insurgents. So I've heard people say, and it's not my opinion, but people say, you know, war almost always does more bad than good. And I would say, well, look at World War II. You had to fight Hitler. Do you think these more modern wars, not necessarily Vietnam, but let's talk about the ones that you were involved in personally, Gulf War, First Gulf War, and invasion of Iraq. Do you think these are justified wars I mean, there's always civilians that are being killed, but in the long run, it, do you think it was more steps forward than it was backwards? Well, I can tell you right now, when I see what's going on in the world, you know, there's a, a, a legitimate threat to the, our way of life. Yeah. Our way of life. And what we've done with ISIS now, which, 
you know, we fought in Al-Ambar province, which is kind of the birthplace of ISIS, which happened after we left. Now, ISIS had started to form. And this, the people that we fought in Ramadi were the same people that eventually became ISIS. But we've done an outstanding job of wiping out ISIS. And is that positive? Absolutely. Is it positive when we were in Ramadi and we were liberating those people? And, and by the way, when I say we, and I talk about the soldiers and Marines, I, you also got to remember, we were with Iraqi soldiers as well. Right. We were alongside Iraqi soldiers every mission that we did. There was Iraqi soldiers that were fighting for their homeland. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll have somebody say to me, you know, you were doing this against the Iraqi people. We were fighting alongside the Iraqi people. Yeah. You know, we, we weren't an occupying force. We were literally side by side with Iraqi soldiers. And so when I see the results of that, when I saw the little girls' schools established inside the city of Ramadi, when I see now you know, ISIS being wiped out and you, you know, you hear the horrible stories of, of the way, the things that they did, you know, the Yadizi women that were just raped systematically and children, little girls and boys that are getting, you know, set, that are becoming sex slaves and sold for $2. You know what? Is it okay for me to go out and fight and kill those people? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I just saw in this movie, I think they were talking about, you know, a woman was accused of adulterer or something there or reading a book or something they're stoning them to death it's like stoning to death this is you know this is a wild i mean a horrible way an ancient primitive way it's like the world's going backwards so you think let's talk about isis for a second i had a talk with uh, some political guys and we did live and people were arguing and trump and obama do you think the way the U.S. now and Trump's handling ISIS, because they're claiming, you know, Donald Trump's like, look, we're winning the battle. Do you think it's because of new policies in the new administration, or do you think it's a carryover from Obama and things like that? No, it's the way that the, ha- the situation's been handled now. It's decentralized command. That's what it is. You know, we write about it in the book, Extreme Ownership. It's, it's decentralized command. It's letting the people that are on the battlefield make decisions on how they're going to handle it. Yeah. And, and that's what happened. And, you know, and that's changed. Is that new under this administration? It yes, wasn't so much under it Obama? It wasn't so much. And, and, you know, he hired, President Trump hired a guy named General Mattis to be the Secretary of Defense. And he's a brilliant guy, a great leader, a guy that's been on the ground, a guy that's, they call him the, the warrior monk. He reads, he's got a personal library of like 7,000 books. Wow. Very smart guy, understands the troops, understands the problem. And he addressed the problem. And he had the freedom of movement to do that on the battlefield, you know, along with his commanders, who he listened to because he understands decentralized command. And yeah, it's been a, a great job. And it hasn't really been in the news much, to be honest with you. You don't know that, you know, ISIS has gone from, I think it was 70,000 ISIS fighters. They're down to like 1,000 ISIS fighters. Really? Yeah. They've been, they've been taken out. And, and by the way, yeah, the American forces have been helping, but most of the door-to-door fighting has been done by the Iraqi soldiers, yeah. which is very impressive because they had a long way to go yeah. from, when we, from when we were working with Yeah, them. I posted an Instagram video. I don't know if it was true. It was like Afghanistani or Iraqis being trained to do jumping jacks. Yeah. And I was like, they're not too coordinated, or at least this group isn't. It was kind of a funny video. Uh, let's see. Lots of questions coming in. Somebody said, Chase says, wow, you're talking to a real hero. Yeah, thank you for your service, by the way. I didn't say that no, earlier. No hero hero. I'll promise you that. Kim Olmeda said General Matt, Mattis is a godsend to put that he was put in the White House. Someone asked if uh, you had a mentor? Yeah, let's talk about this for a second. Mentorship. 
Did you have a mentor before the military and during the military, one or two people that you really see as influential? You know, before the military, n- not anyone that I would single out. Then once I was in the military, obviously I grew up in the SEAL teams, you know, from, from my teenage years up through my adulthood. And so obviously there were some people that had some pretty significant influence on me. And yeah, th- there's no doubt about it. But in a sense, maybe the whole Navy SEAL the whole program was kind of like a mentor for It's you. true, but you got to remember that SEALs are people. Yeah. They're, they're, not, they're not Terminator robots. They're, they're normal people, and there's good SEALs, and there's bad SEALs. And there's SEALs that are great leaders, and there's SEALs that are bad leaders. What's a bad SEAL? Someone who's aggressive, someone you wouldn't trust in battle. Do they make it through sometimes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you do? No, but just so you know, being aggressive doesn't make you a bad SEAL. No, it might make but, you a great SEAL, but, okay, Yeah, can you be too aggressive? Yeah, you can be too aggressive. But most of the time you'll get reined in a little bit. But yeah, someone that's a bad SEAL, someone that cares more about themselves than they do about the team. Really? Yeah. How do they get weeded out, if at all? Well, during training, they're the type of person that takes care of themselves, right? So they're able to weasel their way through. And, you know, one time I was working for an admiral and he said to me, you know, the program will guarantee that you're at least get good guys are coming through. They're at least tough guys. And I said, yeah, well, it also, it, I said, it guarantees two things, that the guy is either tough or the guy figures out a good way to weasel his way through. Yeah. So there are guys like that. You know, everybody's got, every, every organization in the world has their 10% of, you know, low end of the bell curve. Got them in the SEAL teams. Do they get like, in, war, in like World War I or World War II, Guys like that would get shot in the back of the head some, every once in a while, like a bad officer that was forcing their men to charge in. All of a sudden, he would... That probably doesn't happen quite as much anymore, but that used to happen. No, uh, I they think, just kind of disappear. <clears throat> oh, he died in battle. Yeah. In, in his sleep. No, they, they, you know, they, had that, they had that problem in Vietnam, for sure. And yeah. Plus, you had draftees that weren't as you know, dedicated to the mission as a guy might be today. Again, not taking anything away from the millions of draftees that fought during Vietnam with pride and sacrificed their lives. So I'm not saying anything negative, but it was definitely a different culture yeah. when you had people that hadn't volunteered. You know, it's an all-volunteer service right now. And the SEAL teams is like, you volunteered once, now you're volunteering again. So you get guys generally that want to do the job. But again, it's, you still yeah. have your bottom 10%.